Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Benmergi. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi, my podcast on, well, spirituality, not religion, but spirituality, and uh, looking at people and uh, events through that lens. I've found it fascinating, I have to say, all the different people I've spoken to. Some of them, I think, weren't really used to the idea of having that conversation because it's not one you're supposed to be having in mixed company. No. Uh, you don't talk about your religion, you don't talk about politics, but apparently. Uh, since those are two of my major passions, that doesn't make me that popular at dinner parties, but that's why i rather have people over for dinner because then they have no choice. They have to talk about them. Um, we, uh, at this moment, are in between two of the holiest days of the Jewish calendar, uh, the New Year, Rosh, top of head, Hashanah, year. Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish New Year, and it's always made sense to me as a new year because summer's over and you move into fall, and for me, that's, that is the cycle of starting again. And I guess your kids going to school in September is also something that animates new beginnings. But the next holiday is one that I think has got a lot of pieces to it that people hang on to that aren't really the point of the exercise. Yom Kippur, uh, the Day of Atonement. Um, one of the things I t spoke about in my last podcast was this idea that sin in the Jewish religion is not about evil acts. It's about a, um, an aim that is off that you're not aiming properly at the things in your life, the kavanah, the intention of your life. So the, the aim is off, but inside of you is, the, is that beautiful piece that can help you to get that aim back on track. So for, that's one of the things that you're not really supposed to sit there and just feel awful about yourself and what you've done this year, even though at one point you do several, well, many times in the service, take your hand and knock on your heart, knock on your chest. But I've always sort of thought of the Leonard Cohen, that's what Vidui it's called. So I've always thought of Leonard Cohen's, you know, uh, the crack is where the light gets in. Because uh, I think you got to, any spiritual journey, you've got to be able to break open your heart a bit. It's the broken heart that's the gateway to a truly humble and uh, grateful spiritual life, I think. Uh, the other thing about it is you don't eat or drink anything for 25 hours. You don't uh, shower. You don't have sex. You don't wear leather. There's all these different pro proclamations about just stopping your regular life. Uh, I Earlier in podcast time with me, we had some time with Mohammed Faki, who is the owner of Paramount Fine Foods, which is a, a big deal in southern Ontario. And he's a Lebanese and Ramadan was starting and he and I talked about the idea that that holiday and Yom Kippur, which are fasting holidays in their own ways, uh, is about restraint. It's about actually saying I need, I can stop all of these things that I take for granted that are mindless in my life and become mindful by their absence. But for when you're a kid and you're doing Yom Kippur, you spend most of your time just looking at the clock and thinking, am I going to make it? I, how, how many more hours? What do you mean it's only five o'clock in the afternoon? And what used to drive me nuts when I, in the Moroccan synagogue, you stay in the synagogue all day, except for half an hour before you start the Nilad, the last part of the service. Um, but in the Ashkenazi, the Eastern European uh, version of Judaism, you take like a two hour break two and a half hours, and then either come back or you don't come back. 
And that used to drive me nuts when I went to an Ashkenazi synagogue, uh, of which I was a member in Toronto, because I just thought, you know what, this is like hard enough as it is. I don't really need to kill two hours right now. And I'm not in a car. I'm not just hopping in my car and going home. So I'm not going to walk all the way home and all the way back with three hours left in a fast. <laughs> I didn't like that. In the Moroccan one, when the shofar, the, the horn, ram's horn, was blown at the end and we could eat. Once you hear that, you can eat. And rabbis are always begging you to stay for the last part of the service and you don't. So we'd go out into the parking lot and my aunt, who was a pastry uh, chef, would have this thing we called vishuela. And the vishuela was a, a, a strap of dough that you would, she would roll into, into a frying pan of oil and turn it and turn it and turn it, get it out, put it in honey, and then put some icing sugar on it. So she'd have a whole tray of these in the trunk of the car that she'd had there since the day before. And me and all my cousins would all come running to the trunk and shove this vishuela in our mouths. The thing about fasting is you actually think to yourself, oh, I'm gonna eat so much. When this is over, I'm and eight bites into whatever it is that's been prepared for you, you are stuffed because your stomach is so small. My mother used to give us chicken broth. She'd crack an egg into it, boiling chicken broth, stir it up, and that was the first thing you'd drink when you got home. And then she phoned her friend in Lackawanna, New York, Mercedes, Mercedes the Buffalo, that's what we called her. And Mercedes the Buffalo would just wait for the phone to ring to know the fast was over. She wouldn't be going to synagogue because many of the women stayed home and the men went to the synagogue. Um, and therein lies a whole bunch of other stories about who's there and who's not. But Yom Kippur has a lot, obviously, of memories for people who in, engage in it. And I, I always found it to be um, the spiritual energy of it to be surprising. Year after year, I'm still surprised by the spiritual energy of doing the, the ritual of, of Yom Kippur. Uh, and it's, it's a beautifully constructed exercise in humility and grace and forgiveness and passion and compassion. And I, I think that when people wonder why anyone does anything in a religion anymore, I think those ritualized pieces that are really calls to awakening are the reason to have the basic fitness program of a religion. A spirituality, as we've spoken of in the show before, is really a relational issue to myself, to other people. Martin Buber wrote about I and thou, the sacred relationship, as opposed to I and it, which is basically the way we live our lives these days now. Uh, what use are you to me? What transaction can we do here? You know that feeling at a party where somebody's kind of looking over your shoulder to see who they should be talking to? That's I and it. <laughs> I and thou is a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with, with somebody else. And the last part is the heart-and-heart -heart conversation with the universe, with the unknowable. And all of those things come together in these two high holidays. The equivalent of the Christian holiday of Christmas and what it means to people there is more like what we call Passover. Uh, it's when you have to get together with your family whether you like it or not. And you have to eat a lot of food. And somebody always says something inappropriate about it 25 minutes into the Seder. 
uh, kind of like Christmas, right? <laughs> and there are four glasses of wine. So things can happen unless you're the designated driver. All right, that's my, my little rant for today. Uh, thank you for indulging it. Uh, I am uh, going to talk to somebody I've never met, which is always interesting for me. Um, she is a PhD in Judaic studies. She is also an author. Uh, her book, uh, her first novel, Come Back for Me, and she is Sean, uh, Sharon Hart Green, and I welcome Sharon to the podcast. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Great to be here. Does the, any of the Yom Kippur stuff uh, resonate for you as I talk about it? Absolutely, and I like the way you summed it up. It was, it was very well done. Um, it's funny that you mentioned Martin Buber and the I-Thou relationship because Martin Buber actually, at least his works, played such a big role in my life when I first became interested in, um, I guess you would say, the study of Judaism. And I, you know, I grew up Jewish and somewhat traditional home, but I really didn't take Judaism very seriously. As a, as a, a teenager, I was quite rebellious and didn't want anything to do with it. And when I discovered the work of Martin Buber, specifically the book, I and Thou, it changed my life. Wow. Oh. Well, I really didn't know that Judaism, I was probably 18, 19 years old. I was involved in the theater in downtown Toronto. I was involved in Bohemian circles and really didn't, didn't have any interest in anything um, that had to do with organized religion. And I was in a used bookstore on Young Street and I discovered a book by Martin Buber, I and Thou, and I started looking at it and I ended up buying it, brought it home and I thought, Judaism has philosophy, Judaism has spirituality. I didn't, I had never heard of such a thing. And I found it so profound and so moving that it really changed the course of my life at that time. I decided I wanted to study more Jewish philosophy and I ended up studying with Emil Fackenheim at uh, University of Toronto and then just continuing on in my academic interests and then went to Brandeis University and studied Jewish literature. I mean, really discovering I and thou was a pivotal point in my life. Do you remember anything about that first reading that really was something that changed the geography of where you were going to go with your life? Yes, because the differentiation between looking at the world, looking at people as its versus thou's, as 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 uh, as other human beings endowed with with holiness, with spirituality, really hadn't occurred to me. I mean, I think I was always kind of spiritually. I, I used to think about spiritual matters in a very broad way, but that he saw it as something that was part of the Jewish tradition, that it wasn't just part of mm. some sort of universalistic uh, philosophy was a revelation to me. Yeah, it's interesting that there's, uh, I think, a great failing, uh, certainly in the Jewish uh, path uh, in terms of pedagogy is this kind of pediatric attempt to teach yes. what, what, what Judaism is about. Yeah. And it, it kind of 
got reduced in my experience. And I had to go to an Ashkenazi uh, Hebrew school because as Moroccans, we didn't have a Sephardic Hebrew school when we got here in the late 50s and early 60s. Yes. So I had to swim with the other fish. Yes. The gefilte fish, the ones with the carrot, <laughs> carrot on their head. Um, so I, I had to do that. But it, it would have been the same in a Sephardic, if not even more, which was a literalism and uh, a, an emphasis on miracle, but not metaphor. That's right. Yes. And, and ritual without really exploring the depths of the ritual, why, why we perform them, what, what does it do to us internally? That's never really asked, it, I mean, in terms of that, as you call it, pediatric type of education. Once I discovered there, were, there was this profundity within Judaism that I didn't, uh, I hadn't known about, uh, it opened up a whole new world to me. But did you have to change your friends too? I did. You're, you're hanging out with the <laughs> Bohemians, right? And I did. You can't was, tell them you're religious, you know, because that's no, not, not a good idea. No, 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 no. That's a big no-no. No, I did have to change my friends, but it didn't happen overnight. No. It did not happen overnight. I, I gradually started to move away from that world, especially once I went to university. I had taken off time between university. I got involved in theater and I, I took off time between high school and, and university. And once I went to university and then started majoring in Jewish studies, I mean, my entire social circle changed. And uh, that, yeah, was, that was a huge break. Yeah, yeah. Now, there is a, a difference between the study of Judaism and the practice of Judaism. Absolutely, yes. So are you... Because I know lots of people, even rabbis, who are very comfortable with the study of Judaism and certainly know the how to do the practice of Judaism, but have trouble engaging in a congregational way with their with their flock, as it were. Yes, yes. Uh, in your case, was there a divide there, and it, is it has it been bridged, or is it necessary to bridge it? Um, in personally, I I have bridged the divide. I am um, practicing Jew. I am affiliated with the congregation. I. Especially once, I mean, actually it started before I had children, but even once I had children, I felt the need to be part of a very distinct community of other Jews, extremely important. Um, but even before I had children, I, I felt that being part of a community had, um, had its um, place at, at a very important place in understanding what what religion was all about, that it wasn't just an, an individualistic um, pursuit, but it had to do with being part of a larger, larger group. And um, yes, I bridged that, I believe. You know, I always struggle, everybody struggles, especially well, yeah, it's of not, an artistic temperament. <laughs> yes, and, and religion is, is it, people I think uh, assume that if a person has any level of observance of a religion in their life that what they're claiming is certainty. And yet I've never really met anyone no. who's on that path who's certain about anything. And when, when you talk to a rabbi and they say, say to you, well, you know, sometimes I have a strong belief that there's such a thing as God. And sometimes I'm like, eh, uh, maybe not, maybe it's irrelevant. Uh, and it shocks people because they're, they're looking to these people to be certain for them. But as the Chinese say, to be uh, uncertain is uncomfortable, to be certain is ridiculous. <laughs> right? So it's a different thing. I want to talk about, uh, in your book, uh, Come Back For Me, you talk uh, about 
or you center uh, part of the narrative in the Holocaust. And I it's have really a post-war. It's mostly yeah, yes. but, the, but the results of Holocaust. Yes, yes, the, the yeah. consequences. Yeah. Yeah. And for me as a Jew, it's always been an interesting and traumatic kind of trauma by association, but not by experience. Yes. In that being from Morocco, from North Africa, we were not engulfed in the murderous slaughter of our people. That's we, right. We were lucky that Montgomery won and Rommel lost when it yes. came to North Africa. That's the way that worked. Um, but uh, we did in 50, by 57, we had had to leave because of pan-Arab nationalism and Zionism, both right. stirring the pot to take Moroccans out of their 500 year home. Uh, and we didn't go to Israel. And as my mother said, why would we go from being treated like, like dirt in Morocco to being treated like dirt in Israel? <laughs> because we were Sephardi and Sephardi are not, uh, they are the underclass of Israel uh, to this day. Um, but the Holocaust itself, I went to a Hebrew school with teachers who had been in it, who had yes. numbers on their forearms while they were writing on it. We were shown films of bodies being pushed into pits. Yeah. Uh, I was deeply uh, affected and traumatized by that part of our history. Uh, and nowadays it's quite acceptable to talk about intergenerational trauma. Yes. You, you carry these burdens from one to another and even in your gene makeup. You yes, yes they seem to be, there seem to be some um, scientific basis for, for saying that the trauma can be passed along genetically. I, you know, there, there is speculation on that. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in other cultures, there's cultures where, where uh, there were mass starvations uh, and the descendants of those people have eating disorders. Yes. Like, they weren't there. Yes. Like, they, but... still, food is still completely, you know, uh, complicated for them. Yeah, having yes. or not having what what when you feel of, of the Holocaust, what do you feel? Well, um, most of my readers assume that I am probably the child of Holocaust survivors, a grandchild of Holocaust survivors, or that somehow I have this deep personal connection to what happened in Europe. The truth is, is that I'm not a child or grandchild of survivors. Um, although I grew up among, among them. So, you know, my, my mother was born in Europe, but came to Canada as a young child. My father was actually born in Toronto. So um, I don't have that kind of direct personal trauma in my life. At the same time, many of my friends were children of survivors. And in fact, my very closest friend when I was growing up um, was a child of survivors. So I, I, think I had a kind of objectivity because I didn't experience it myself, but yet I was watching it. I was watching it played out before me in some of my friends who were definitely different. And I, I, I felt as though I wanted to understand what had happened in their families, which seemed, you know, marked by the trauma in, in particular ways. Could you make sense of it? I mean, as a kid, no, not at all. As a child, I really didn't understand it. But yet I, I was curious and I, I wanted to understand. One of the things I wanted to understand, strangely enough, was how they seemed so normal. They were marked by it, but yet at the same time, they, they went seemed, to work. They went to, they, they went to work. They had families. They, they were able to laugh. Yeah. Um, 
I spent a lot of time in my friend's home and her mother, you know, was, was profoundly traumatized having been in, in Auschwitz. But yet we used to watch comedy shows on TV together with her mother and she'd be laughing uproariously. And, you know, I couldn't quite put the two sides of her life together and make sense of them. So I think part of the motivation, even though it, I, I don't know how conscious it was, but I think part of my motivation in writing this novel was trying to understand why some people seem to survive better than others. What is the secret to um, overcoming trauma or at least living with it in a healthy way? Uh, and others completely fall apart and their lives are shattered. So do you go in your own mind to Viktor Frankl and Man's Search for Meaning? Um, or, or no? Because I do. No. Yes and no. I, I mean, I think Viktor Frankl is illuminating to some extent because of his whole idea that um, those who survived were those who had um, some kind of sense of higher belief. Or purpose. Or purpose, yes. Um, but I think that is only true in a very limited sense because those who survived didn't only survive because of that. Those, there, were, there was a lot of luck involved. Right. I mean, you could have a perp as much purpose as possible. And if you were selected for extermination, you had no hope in, in the world to survive. So really, I mean, yes, attitude is good. Attitude is great, but it doesn't necessarily save you. Yeah. So I, you know. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I, I mean, wouldn't rely too heavily on Frankl, even though I think it's destructive. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend, you know, as a kid, I, I there were two things I thought about. One was, what if that had been me? Oh, I thought about that all the time. And the other one as a boy was, they might send me to a war. Yes. I'm, I don't think I'm the kind of person who can shoot people. If it starts, I'll just pretend I'm dead and maybe they'll walk by because I'm yeah. not cut out for this. So I was always afraid of those things. I wasn't, you know, one day I'm going to be in the army. You know, yeah. I, I wasn't getting anywhere near an army. Uh, so, but the Holocaust was one of those things where whether you want this legacy or not, you, it's in your backpack. It's going yeah. to be with you for the rest of your life. Yes. And and it doesn't go away. I think there are a lot of people that want to stop talking about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, who wants to talk about mass genocide? You know, yeah. I was in Germany once giving some speeches for the Canadian club years ago because uh, Al Waxman couldn't go. So uh, they sent me. Yes. <laughs> it's like, okay. Um, <laughs> and it was for the Canadian troops at Baden and Lahr at the airport really? bases. And in the middle of that, in Baden, 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 they have the Roman baths. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, I was in one of these baths. I'm sitting in there, you know, naked with these German men who were 25 years older than me. Yes. 30 years old. And I'm thinking, but you were there. You, you were part of this. It was your country that decided to do this exterminate. And I'm the Jew sitting here in the tub with you. Yes. And, you know, the joking thing would be my imagining of jumping up and going, you missed me, you missed me. <laughs> but, the, but the serious part of me was just like, I don't know what I, to do with this feeling. Like, I just want to confront you, even though you'll go, hey, it wasn't me. Yes. Right? So it's, it's kind of being gaslit. 
You, you yes. can't really talk about your, your anger, your pain, and your frustration. And that Jews I grew up with grew up with an enormous amount of defensiveness and a preemptive racism of their own. Well, if they're going to hate us, we'll hate them first. Yes, yes. And I, I, that was the narrowing, the Mitzrahim, as it were, of this idea was this narrow passage of, of not being able to contain forgiveness. Where does forgiveness sit in your life? Well, it's always a struggle. I think, you know, I think we all struggle with um, trying to forgive those who cause us pain um, on a personal level, but on a national level, it's very difficult. I think it's even more difficult mm. um, because, you know, when you know that um, your people was, you know, your people was all, were almost ex you know, completely exterminated, um, it's very hard to say, okay, I'm past that. You know, the world has changed. I remember having those arguments with my parents when I was young. Mm -hmm. It comes into my novel a little bit as well. Yeah. Oh, it's not like that anymore. The world has changed. Boy, you must have driven them nuts. <laughs> they say, oh, wait, wait and see. Yeah, pace yourself. Yeah. And I say, no, no, you don't know. You don't know my friends. They're not like that. They don't hate Jews. <laughs> yeah, right now. And that's the thing is that it, it could be Hutus and Tutsis. It can be, you know, it's a universal thing of, of, of this kind of cultural insanity that can take over a group of people and convince yes. them that, that absolutely this is going to be taken from them, you know, and, and it, it, it has different manifestations. One of the themes in, in, in your, you move through time a lot in this book. You, yes. Right, so you're... I go back and forth in time, and the narrative. There are two narratives. One is um, one takes place in the late '40s. The other takes place in the late '60s. But the 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 narrative about the young man who's a survivor who goes in search of his sister in Europe and then in Israel and then and England. I mean, he travels from place to place. That one develops to the point where he ends up in the '60s, whereas. The young girl in the 60s stays there. So their two lives eventually meet. Lovely. Did you have that full blown in your head at the beginning without the content or? No. Did you, I didn't. you didn't? I did not, no. You know, when I write, I don't have a planned uh, outline. I, I. Publishers must love you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, for fiction writing, you have to submit a complete manuscript. I know. So it's finished. It's not like when you submit a, a proposal for a nonfiction manuscript. You can just submit one chapter and a... And a oh, know. that's what I did. I, I have one I'm working on right now, a, a nonfiction called I yeah. Thought He Was Dead, um, oh. about being me, uh, and about my, my journey into the autumn of my life. Huh. Sounds intriguing. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it, the, these things have to be made conscious, but I can't imagine the, I can totally understand the desire to have uh, no fixed address when you're writing in fiction, though. But the story, st which character started to propel you forward the most in this book? Oh, definitely. the easiest? The, the, the Holocaust survivor rather than the girl in the 60s. The Holocaust survivor was an early an early uh, figure that emerged at the very beginning of the writing. Um, I had a vague idea of how the book would end and I knew where I was going, but I didn't know how I would get there. Mm. 
And I really like writing like that. In fact, I don't think I could write well if I knew exactly where I was going. It takes the fun out of it. I, yeah. love, I like feeling that I'm groping through the story with my characters. But you just said you knew where you were going. So where were you going? <sighs> You'd have to read the book. <laughs> I don't want to know. <laughs> I know. Everything I'm reading about it, it's just like, and I'm not going to tell you the last chapter, but it, it's, 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 <laughs> I don't right. like giving things away, but. Uh, well, I okay. So in, in, med- in general terms, there's a lot of, from what I've been able to read so far, there's, redemption is an important part of your story. Absolutely. There is redemption. And there's redemption for both the, the main characters in the story, but how they achieve it, I didn't know until I got there. And they they achieve it in different ways, but yet there's, there's a link between how they do so. Um, a lot of it has to do with recognizing who they are at, rather than fleeing from who they are. Right. They both were trying to run from it and by acknowledging their own identity, their own sense of, um, of, of it's not really religious identity, but it, it's closer to national and ethnic identity. They come closer to healing. So that's all I'll say for now. I'm writing a second novel and it's the same thing. I, I know where I'm going to some extent, but I'm not sure how I'm getting there. And I've written more than half of it. Mm, that's lovely. That, that's trusting the process and trust, trusting yeah. yourself. Yes, you have to, you know, it takes a lot of um, self-confidence to write a novel and I don't always have it. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's so, the problem. So I order it in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I stop writing. You know, I go on the I go through these periods where I feel that I can't continue and mm. then I stop and then I get back to it. It's, it's I talked story. to a writer who's a I always forget his name, he's Scottish. He's written a lot of detective novels. Ian Rankin maybe. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. So I, I was interviewing him once years ago and I said, What give one tip to writers? Yes. Because he's prolific. Yes, I know. And I and he said, "Well, my tip is this: when you're writing, when you're going to know you're going to stop for the day, stop in the middle of a thought. Never finish your thought." Yes, that's excellent. Isn't that excellent? It is. It's excellent. In fact, I do that without without ever without putting it exactly in that way. That's exactly what I do. When I stop for the day, I always start a new sentence even, even just, and I leave it so that I know where I left off and I, it gives me that impetus to be able to continue. And you know, you still have something to say. That's right. So then you can ruminate about some, that something you're going to say and come back. It was brilliant. I just thought, now that is a PhD in in English creative writing right there. (laughs) That's so true. I love the way he put that. Yes. Yeah. And I just thought, of course, because if you finish the thought the next day, you're tortured as you stare at the page. It's staring um, at that blank screen. You know, it's interesting as you describe the journey of the characters, it reminds me of where we started in the conversation with your own sort of uh, dried out Judaism that you reject and rightly and move into your own creative self as an artist uh, and are feeling it and, you know, uh, 
what used to be a, a hip Queen Street West, which is now a Yorkdale with no roof. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, hanging out in Toronto and all of that. But then having this moment with Boober and then moving in a totally different direction towards real meaning for yourself. Yes. And, and it, it sounds kind of like what, you, what you're putting these characters through. Where do you think... So Israel is an important part of this story as well. Absolutely, yes. Yes. And I don't know about you, but when I go, and I've gone fairly often, I, I even did a documentary series called My Israel, a six-part series for Vision at one point. Mm, interesting. Which for, which for the people listening, uh, they could actually find on Prime. Oh, uh, is it on Prime? I have Prime. I'm going to look for it. Yeah, it, it was really fascinating to do. We spoke to everybody about everything. Uh, we weren't trying to, you know, win a point. Uh, yes. Israel should be this, and those people are the right people, and those people are the, I mean, in Israel, the conversation about what's going on is much more robust than it is here in the diaspora. Absolutely. I, I find that the reportage here is so skewed yeah. to the extremes. And when you go there, there's a little bit of everything. And the Jewish community here uh, dare not take controversial positions about what, what Israel's actions are at any given time because it's considered disloyal and will no, attract negative attention. Well, they, they, they the mutter it to themselves and look for like-minded people. But I, I, I was giving speeches at, uh, at congregations about the, uh, the documentary and my own ambivalence and, and love of Israel all in the same breath. Uh, and, they, and I had people coming up to me at the end I mean, when I spoke about the, the the racism against Sephardic Jews, for instance, I had people standing up and saying, no, you know, that used to be, that's not the way it is. And I'd say, really? Show me one Sephardic person on the currency of Israel. Show me, tell me why nine out of 10 judges are Ashkenazi Eastern European Jews. Tell me why when cultural centers are built, they're built for opera. They're not built for the, the na native music of the people of the region. You know, tell me why kids run home in front of their friends to get their mother to turn off the Arabic music that their mother is playing because and straighten their hair. Right. <laughs> yeah. Tell me why that is. And, and so somebody would come out and then I'd say Israel is complicated. Uh, and uh, as much as there is a, a, a deep piece of me that's just like, you know, no, I don't really care what you say. We're going to stay here. This is the last place we can be. And yeah. we've had 2,000 years of no last place we could be, no safe haven. Mm -hmm. So really, as imperfect and awful as it is, and how horrible certain things are about the behaviors and the oppression, there's also the beauty of the fact that for once it's there, but it's also the dangerous pill. Because in being diasporic, there's a genius to that. There's a beauty to having been part of all these cultures. Saying There was a settler I interviewed, a radio guy, yes. uh, who said... If you don't come back, you're not you're not really a Jew. I mean, the whole purpose is to make Aliyah. You have to come back. You're a Jew if you're if you're here. And I I was shocked by that. I just yes, thought yes. you know I've had that many times. In fact, I've I've done a few radio interviews um, for for a few different radio stations in Israel. And at the end, and because I I'm quite fluent in Hebrew and I go to Israel a lot, I've had put to me many times. So new, why aren't you here? You know? yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it puts you on the spot. And, and what do you say? I always say, I wish I could. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I can hack it. Um, I love being there. I don't know if I could live there 
that easily. I would, I would love to try, but I'm not sure I can. What's the hardest part? The hardest part is the, um, I think you need to be an extremely thick skinned person to be able to survive the daily, the tensions of daily life in Israel. Yeah. It's a rougher society. Oh yeah. And, um, I, I, I think I'm, I think I'm too sensitive. Unfortunately, I mean, I just don't know if I can hack it. Too I, Canadian. You're too yeah, Canadian. too Canadian, too polite. You have to be quite aggressive. Yeah. And um, I don't what? know. What? What is your problem? What is with you? <laughs> Manishma, why would you talk like this? Get out yeah. of my way. And we're like, whoa. Always. always. Yes, always. And, you know, I think you acquire it. And I think I could acquire it. I do. You know, I go there. I start talking like that. But <laughs> it's funny. But I always think I'd live in Haifa. Yeah. Because yeah. it's the most pluralistic, most normal city in, in the country. You know, yes. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, there's, you know, that wall for me is a, a major part of the dangerous red flag of homeland. Yes. Because you, you worship brick and mortar. And if anybody reads anything in their Judaism, it's that that's not the idea. No, no, it isn't at all. And yet, they'll kill or die for it. Yeah, but they'll kill or die for those bricks now. Yes, yes. Right? So in Haifa, you have the Baha'i Center. You have Arab and Jew living together. You have the North as a, as a moderating factor yes. of being Israeli. I, I, I always say that my wife was like, no, I wouldn't do that. I, <laughs> You know, well, there's actually a little town that my husband and I always say that if we ever move to Israel, it's right, it's very close to Haifa. That's where we want to live. It's called Kiryat Tivon. I don't know if you've ever been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You no know Kiryat Tivon? Yeah, yeah. It's just this idyllic village and uh, with gardens and um, and without you know, sweltering heat. I might. Yes, yes. And we always say that's where we would want. To live. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is it you want? What in writing this book and in your Judaism, where do you want to situate yourself by the time I've finished reading this book? What, what is it that you're trying to convey to me through this book? Well, you know, I, I called the book Come Back for me because it's drawn from a particular line in the novel, but it has a much deeper resonance and a broader resonance in the book. It, it, it's, it's all about coming back. It's not just, I mean, in the novel, the sister of the hero in the, in the first narrative calls to her brother to come back for her when they're separated during the war. But the coming back applies to almost every character in the novel. And I think the novel calls out to the reader to come back to their, to their selves. To their true self? To their true selves, whatever that may be, and to stop putting masks on. There are many characters in the book who wear various masks because they don't really know who they are. And some of it has to do with Judaism, having to acknowledge that um, they're Jews and they should stop pretending to be otherwise. Mm -hmm. Some of them are um, still carrying the burden of internalized anti-Semitism, where you know, being a Jew meant being loud and pushy or, or ugly. Mm. And um, they try to escape that sense of being labeled and, and therefore try to avoid 
who they are. So there are many levels on which that works. And I think it's that call to come back to their selves, to their true selves, that the novel is, is I guess, beckoning to the reader. Mm. There's a lot. But you know, I've had a lot of non-Jews read it and and it, you don't have to be Jewish in order to- No, no, you, it, to these are universal call. themes. It's a universal theme and you don't have to be Jewish to hear that call. No, you look, I mean, uh, the whole, BIPOC movement right now, the Black Indigenous People of Color movement, uh, the people within that, as Jews, I certainly can relate. I happen to have pink skin, so I can pass. Right. Which is always the sort of gooey membrane that Jews can slip through to become like the other. Yes. Uh, in Western well, we, civilization. We know we're not exact. We know we're kind of faking it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and yet I, I, f I find myself, uh, you know, in a situation, for instance, I, I remember years ago at the CBC, they, they convened a group of us when I was working there about how to, uh, become more representative of other kinds of people. And, um, they had these categories of different peoples, people, you know, black people, indigenous people, um, South Asian people, you know, all these different yeah. things. And I and I I tried to say uh, to the woman who was running the meeting, um, I have to say as a Jew, of course everybody's head pops up when you say that yes. uh, that, that loaded word. Um, as a Jew, uh, I'm wondering where we are in here because yes. good question. And and she shut me down in two seconds flat. She was just, <laughs> that we are not here to talk about that. We're not getting into all that. <laughs> And I was shocked. I was just like, and yet I remember, uh, you know, uh, a little while ago, uh, somebody asked me to apply for uh, this, this position. And it was right at the beginning of this whole um, horrible chapter of repeat, this repeat nightmare of the United States and the Floyd killing. And I, I, I came home and uh, I said, you know, I don't have a chance to get this right now because this is, and there's so many reasons that's fine uh, because we need to just actually stop talking about representing other people and actually represent other people and have them in positions of power. And that's all fine. But I have to tell you as a Jew, they don't understand that we are the other as well. Oh, absolutely. We're never counted as, as the other though. In those calculations, Jews never are counted. And, you know, cancel culture has become so prevalent now where, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of groups are being canceled. People are being canceled. People are losing jobs. Um, you know, if Jews were going to start canceling, <laughs> there'd be no end. Yeah. I mean, look, on the other hand, 50 years ago at the university of Toronto, there was a quota for how many Jews you'd allow into the medical school. There was a quota right. for how many Jews would be allowed into Canada for that matter. Uh, and that fought, that fight was fought. And now the comfort zone, you know, I, I've said before in this program that to be a Jew is to know that everywhere you live, it's a rental. Yes. It, it, you know, I had a 500 year rental in Morocco. That was, you know, quality rental. Yeah, that was a, yeah, it was a good run. <laughs> a good run, yeah. but it's a rental. Yes. And, you know, you don't want to get into one downmanship. You know, you think no. you've had it rough. Look at it, how, what we've been through. No, but no, that's it. You, you don't want to turn it into that. And um, 
the problem with quotas is, is that it never ends. You know, it, it will never, because how do you, who makes the decisions and who, who rates? You know, is it only people of color? Well, what if the color doesn't show on your skin? What if you're half of a certain race and half of another? And how, who proves it? I mean, it's just a... It's I know, but on the other hand, systemic racism is so real and so hard for people to understand that, that, that people, if, if they are uh, witness to uh, a crime uh, and there's a, a black suspect, they will give that male suspect three more inches of height and 30 to 40 more pounds of weight because of their fear of black people. If a, if a black yeah. man walks into a yeah. variety store and is looking for something, you don't even realize you've already criminalized this man or an indigenous person. Out West, you see the, the racism with the indigenous I know. population of Canada blatantly everywhere. So to me, it's more about a re-education of ourselves out of exceptionalism because the other, the other side of the, the knife for Jews is their own idea of exceptionalism. One of the things I, I talk about with, right. with groups when I do aging to saging workshops and things like that is, look, God's not Jewish you're Jewish. Right. There's a big difference. You've just decided either born into it or attracted to it. You don't have to be anybody to be Jewish. You decide you're going to become Jewish and convert to being a Jew. You, that's one of the things about Israel. You walk around and you think that person can't possibly be an Israeli Jew. And there, there they are in a completely different look than what you're that's used right. to. Black, white, um, yeah. Asian. Uh, looking Asian. Absolutely. I mean, Yes, every color. We're not a race of people. No. But we also have to be very wary. I remember I was at a Shabbat dinner where somebody was arguing that we were better people. That really? Per capita, we have more Nobel Prizes. Per this, we have... And I yeah, said, I've, heard, I've heard that. Oh, yeah, God, yes. And I say, are you no. trying to tell me that we're better? Yeah. And the woman turned to me and said, yes. And my wife looked at me like, please don't make a fuss. <laughs> we, we didn't know them very well. And of course, I made a fuss. I just said that. This is Shabbat. This is Sabbath. And this is how you're speaking. Yes. yes. We are, that means other people are lesser than us. Do you understand what you're really saying here? Yes. It's so difficult. I mean, you have people going through post-Holocaust, the Six-Day War. I mean, I remember I was a kid when the Six-Day War happened. And when we didn't get killed, I had a moment of triumphalism. Yes. It's like, you know what? We're no longer the victim. They it lasted can't... about five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was like, you think you got trouble? Let me yeah. tell you about what trouble looks like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so where do you go from here? Where does your Judaism go from here? Um, well, you know, I, I was teaching for many years at U of T. And um, I taught Jewish, I taught Hebrew and Yiddish literature. And I stopped teaching in order to finish my first novel. And I really haven't gone back. And um, I think I'm pouring my sense of self into novel writing. That's where it's going. Your true self. My true self. It's, yeah. it's hard how, to find, isn't it? It is. It is. Because I was always torn between the academic and the artistic. I felt right. I didn't know where I really fit the best. And then I decide, I made a decision and it's been a happy decision. Well, it's not a simple decision, right? Because the, the academic, if it's, if you land in the right situation, it has this wonderful thing called a paycheck that keeps showing up. Yes. But I was always part-time. 
Ah. I was always part-time. I, I was raising kids and I took on part-time teaching and I stayed as a part-time professor for 20 years. So, uh, you know, for me, it wasn't a full-blown career. Right. And so to give it up wasn't giving up as much as it would be if I had really pursued, you know, right, tenure and all, done all of that. Yeah. So as Yom Kippur approaches, it's a few yep. days away, even though people will hear this after that as well, obviously. Um, what happens for you? What happens for me? Well, normally I would be in the synagogue. Yes. Uh, and uh, <laughs> That ain't happening. Normally I would be. I might be in a tent <laughs> in the parking lot of the synagogue if oh, it's yeah. not freezing cold. Um, that's where I will be. If not, I will be home. And I will be fasting, and I find it very hard to fast, but I will do it. I, I do it every year. And um, I, you know, I liked what you said about how at the very beginning about ritual and how ritual is more than just performing the actions, that it has a deeper meaning, that it allows you to pause, it allows you to make separations and distinctions. And I think that's so true. We often think I, that religion should be spontaneous. And I think there's great value in spontaneity. But on the other hand, if you do not have rituals that um, establish when you do something and how you do it, it's very unlikely that you will be spontaneous very often. That at least with, with having a cycle of the seasons, of the holidays, of, the, of these particular actions that are required of us, it gives you a structure. And I think that structure is extremely important for allowing you space in order to do the kinds of soul searching, the kind of sense of um, exploring who you are and what kind of person you wanna be in the coming year that you might not do, you might think you'll do it, but you'll keep putting it off. It's very hard to force yourself to do those sorts of things when you don't have to. We're lazy, yeah. you know, we don't tend to do those things. Yeah, I always look at the observant Jew, who the rest of us go, you know, maybe we'll have some people for Shabbat. Maybe we'll do a Sabbath dinner on a Friday night or a Saturday lunch. Maybe, maybe. we're not too busy. And yeah. then the observant person looks at you and goes, this isn't a maybe. This is every Friday night is Shabbat, and that's just the way and, it is. And you do it, yes. Yeah, and 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 you, if there's somebody who needs a, a place to sit and eat with you, then you invite them, whether or not that's you right. think they're palatable or not. You just go, come to our house. That's right. And that's but, part of what being part of a community is, as opposed to that individualistic sort of observance. Yeah, it's interesting in Israel because it's been absorbed into the, because it's the dominant culture, Yes. It's just a given that a Friday night you would have dinner with your family and hang out. That's right. And there are always people that will invite you. You know, if yeah. you're on your own, you go to a synagogue and people often approach you. Oh, do you have somewhere to go for lunch? Do you have somewhere to go for dinner? And as a Canadian, you're like, what's in it for you? What, what do you want? What yeah, do you, why, why are you, are you talking to me? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> That's right. You're scaring me. Yes. Three feet, three feet. <laughs> well, I, I wish you uh, a good fast. Thank you. You too. I don't know Thank if you, you fast. but Oh, I fast. fast. Since I was 10, I fasted. Yeah. Uh, I wish you a good fast. I wish you a sweet year. 
Thank you. You too. And uh, thank you for writing this. I've, I've only read bits of it because I didn't. We didn't even get in touch with each other until like yesterday. I know. <laughs> so I've got to be like, hey, I just want her on anyway. Um, but come back for me. Sharon Hart Green is the author. You're available on Amazon and everything else. Right? Everywhere, yeah. Yeah. Stores, Amazon, etc. Yeah. So uh, good luck with the second novel. Thank you. And uh, take care of yourself and take care of uh, the people you love. Thank you. You too. Great to meet you and, and to have this conversation. Likewise. Okay. Sharon Hart Green is the author of Come Back For Me. Uh, folks, I'm going to take my leave of you. I will say that um, I am a spiritual counselor, a spiritual director, as they're called. It's a horrible name, but spiritual counseling is what we do in companionship. Uh, I have a website if you're interested, Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh is intention in Judaism, and without intention when you wake up in the morning, life is much harder. Um, but Kavanaugh, K-A-V-A-N-A-H dot C-A. Uh, go there, get in touch with me there. And um, I do one-on-one uh, -on -one, uh, with clients on a regular basis. And uh, sometimes I even do some group work with aging to saging. So in this case, it's individual clients. And if anyone's interested in the bigger questions in one's life, why am I here? What am I doing? What's the, where's my yearning, my spiritual yearning taking me? Uh, there's There's lots of things that are kind of in the truer self of who we are that are worth exploring than the symptoms of what we are that are confounding and keep us rather busy. Uh, I'm Ralph ben Mergi. You take care of each other and we'll see you again on Not That Kind of Rap.
This podcast has been produced by TMDS and accelerated by Rome Phone. Rome Phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number from unwanted calls. Visit romephone.ca to get started.